Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Hi, this is Tom Dunlap, your host, back with you on the Black Letter Podcast. This week with me, once again, I've got my friend and chief counsel at the FAA, happy, smiling Mark Nichols. And this week, he's going to bring us one of his problems. He's going to tell us about a challenge, whether it's a current problem, past problem, and how he overcame that. And, you know, we'll all walk away having learned something more, which is why I love this show. Mark, I'm going to, I'm not going to lay into you. I'm going to open up the floor. I know you've thought about this. Um, so of all of the things in life, what, what challenge do you think is particularly interesting or, or salient? Or what would you like to share today? This is the sharing time. It's like romper. Well, I'm gonna, actually going to raise a couple. Um, one is, I, I think, something that everybody will relate to, um, which is dealing with the aftermath of COVID. Um, as, a, as a senior executive, as a manager, um, where you got employees who don't want to come back to work, uh, in, in the, in, at least into the office. Um, you know, may uh, not be the first person that said that <laughs> yes. in the last, like, three months every day of the week. I, I, like, I've heard that from I have a friend at the EU in Europe, and he's like, it's just me and six people in the building. Yes, and we just get the junior people to come in. They just won't. So love part, it. part of this for me, though, is the challenge because as a federal employee, we have lots of workspace, as you can imagine, in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. You know, the FAA has two buildings on Independence Avenue across the street from each other that are hardly occupied. <laughs> What is our responsibility to the American public to make great use of taxpayer money that went into f- securing these facilities uh, and making sure that we're getting the best use out of them on behalf of the American people? Or we are deciding that we maybe need to do something else with those facilities. And so, you know, part of this for me is looking at what our responsibilities are to the taxpayers and making sure that we're living up to that responsibility. Certainly it is to our employees. I'm uh, in the process of uh, hiring, hopefully, about 100 new employees over the next two to three years. Most of them are going to be young uh, attorneys uh, coming into the federal government for the first time, or at least into the FAA for the first time. There is a significant uh, learning curve that needs to happen uh, because when you come into the FAA, you learn that there's not a lot of things that are intuitive. You have to be around. You have to to learn it from others. You have to collaborate more. And if you don't, then it really slows down the process. And you know, in our line of work, slowing down the process means maybe slowing down safety, and that puts everybody at risk. And we don't want to do that ever. So we have to kind of walk this very fine line. You know, when during the pandemic, none of the air traffic controllers, of which we have a substantial number, I say about. Uh, 15, 20,000 employees at the FAA are air traffic controllers. They could not work from home. <laughs> they right. had to actually work in the air traffic control towers. 
during the pandemic. And so when I was trying to decide what, you know, what the legal um, team's policy was going to be for coming back to work, I had it in the back of my head, you know, what, what would I tell these air traffic controllers who had to go in every single day despite and face down the challenges of, you know, a, a deadly pandemic, um, all in the interest of serving our taxpayers and ensuring that they had safe passage if they were flying around the country because there were people who were flying around the country because they had to. I tried to make sure that, you know, I was trying to be fair both to the larger picture about what was going on, but to those younger, younger employees who need to have, you know, some face time with me or other senior leaders who actually learn around the proverbial water cooler, what's going on and then decide, Oh, you know, I really would like to kind of get involved in that because we're not having those kinds of conversations on zoom or teams meetings. We're not sitting around after meetings and having a, uh, you know, a, a discussion about maybe some things that didn't come up during that meeting that, you know, upon further reflection, now we're sort of maybe starting to have uh, that's, that's now starting to come out. And those young people aren't sitting around learning from, you know, these, these older, more experienced attorneys in terms of how to interact, how to manage, um, you know, how to suss out what their clients are really looking for, you know, and how to address those things. So, you know, so you have both of those, uh, those of those things. So that's one example. Uh, the second I was at, um, so Mark, Rose- to ask on that, yeah. did you ever tell when somebody says, Hey, I just don't want to come in, especially the younger people. We found that. Do you just say, look, this is the FAA that doesn't fly here. Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I could have said that, but no, I, you know, the way I tried to, it's probably true, but, uh, you know, but the way I tried to couch it, you know, so I, I made a rule that, you know, non-managers had to come in two days a week. Managers had to come in three days a week. Um, and, you know, you would have thought that I had, you know, made a slur about somebody's mother, but, you know, with the anger that was. <laughs> yeah. How did that work out? <laughs> Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I tried to be very forthcoming about why I thought it was at the end of the day going to be better. You know, if you would ask me before the pandemic whether I thought teleworking was good, you know, from a productivity standpoint, et cetera, you know, I, most people in this country would have probably said no, you know, because we're not in Silicon Valley, which has been pioneering on teleworking for a very long time. But that's right. not been the experience of the rest of the country. I think what the pandemic showed is that, yes, we can make it work uh, and we can make it work relatively well, but there are still gaps in terms of how we need to work and collaborate and get the most efficient and effectiveness um, uh, uh, out of our, our employees and our work experience. And, and as managers, we have responsibilities to meet those two and, 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 and to bring them out. Uh, and you can't do that solely from a, a Zoom meeting. We found that our older people wanted to be in the office, the people who were over 45, for example, and the younger people after this was kind of over and were like, we, we, we always had an open office. We're a government contractor as a law firm, all this stuff. But the younger people were the ones that we have the biggest challenge with. They're so used to it. It was so uh, easy for them and, and for most of our middle-aged people to do this. Did you find that kind of split or was it more responsibility split or? Well, how how did you find that? Well, so a, a lot of your viewers may not, or listeners may not um, realize, but 
the FAA has almost, I'd say, 60 to 70 percent of its workforce um, is unionized. Oh, okay. Uh, including wow. most, most of the lawyers in my office are also unionized. union? What yes. union is that? What is that union? You know, so we have two different unions, NATCA and ASME. And so, you know, you have, um, you know, a different set of concerns because they have a, a, a collective bargaining agreement and you, you have to negotiate and, you know, and, and, and one of the things I learned coming to the FAA, which is just bizarre, is that we have multiple different types of unions who will have different collective bargaining agreements with various departments within the FAA. So it's not like one collective FAA collective bargaining agreement that we're dealing with, we've got like, I don't like 13, 15 different collective bargaining agreements that we have to deal with. And so each one, you know, obviously has to be given their, their due respect, but you know, each manager also needs to try and figure out what's in the best interest, not just for the employees and the workers, which of course is always uh, an important element, but you also have to try and figure out what's in the best interest of the government and the taxpayers and the service that you're supposed to be providing in the manner in which you're supposed to be providing it. It's a challenge. Right. Well, because you're holding people's lives in your hand. I mean, arguably, aviation is one of, I think it's one of the safest things in the country. I'm a pilot. I tell people you're much higher chance of dying on the beltway, as you and I both know, than dying in a commercial aircraft crash. But it's also one of the things people are most afraid of. And when there is an accident, it's the biggest you know, everybody dies. What is it? Um, these these jets glide like pianos. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, put your seatbelt on. Put your. I was like, you're gonna die if the plane falls out of the sky. It's just. Uh, I, I, I work for the aviation industry, aerospace industry. I love aircraft, but even I have a healthy, let's say, respect for you know what an aircraft is, um, the skill of pilots. And, you know that you know you're in these multi-ton cylindrical tubes flying through the air of you know 500 600 miles an hour it needs to be given its due respect and you know one of the things i have learned uh, which i knew coming into the agency but it's been even better to learn once i got here is just how much safety drives our decision making it may not be me on that flight but maybe i'm sending daniel somewhere you know it may not be me on that flight but maybe i'm sending my friend tom somewhere um, you know, it may not be me on that flight, but maybe it's, you know, my, my friend's mother that's on that flight. And to a person that I have met uh, here at the FAA, there isn't a single person who doesn't take seriously the responsibility that we have to every single individual. You know, we may not always get it 100% right. We're human beings, but it won't be for lack of trying. Well, so what I love, Mark, and you probably know this. I've done a fair amount of work in aviation outside of the country, and every other country views the FAA as the gold standard. So most countries, if you meet the FAA standard, you automatically meet their standards when it comes to aircraft manufacturing and maintenance and things like that. And I just think that's it's an amazing thing to give credit to the agency and what you guys do. So set that aside. So back to you. Tell me about your problems. Um, so COVID was one, and we talked about how you resolved that. So you said you had something else. So one of the things that when I was at Rolls-Royce, uh, and I'm not telling you anything that isn't public, you know, Rolls-Royce was embroiled um, in a, a, a bribery scandal that got all sorts of public attention. 
um, and you know ended up costing the company you know a, a massive amount of money and fines and things. Uh, but during that process, I was tasked with leading Rolls Royce's uh, response to it in the in the U.S. Uh, and, and 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 in Brazil which was part of my uh, jurisdiction um, when I was at Rolls-Royce. And, you know, and I was working with a wonderful team that was o- being overarchingly led, you know, by, by some wonderful attorneys um, in, in England where, where Rolls-Royce was based. You know, one of the things that you, you learn is the importance of reputation. I forget who the character was, but, you know, somebody says, you know, where do I go to get my reputation back? Um, you know, and, and, you know, I always try to teach young people that, um, you know, part of what you do, part of who you are, it usually comes long before you entered the room. <laughs> you know, the, the more you're out in the public space, the more that will precede you when you get into the public room and you have to decide, you know, what type of reputation, what you want to be said about you. When, you, when it gets there long before you. Now, you have the opportunity maybe to change minds once people do meet you, but it makes life a hell of a lot easier if the reputation that you have when you entered the room is an outstanding one. Part of that challenge was trying to, you know, uh, rehabilitate Rolls-Royce's reputation, you know, after this bribery scandal and, you know, all the changes that we had to make in terms of the, the rules that we had, the policies that needed to be changed, um, you know, our relationship with the government, um, you know, and, and, you know, as now sitting on the other side of that table, let me just counsel everyone is that there is nothing better than for you to just be upfront and, you know, truly transparent um, with the government because we understand the humans are by their nature failed uh, individuals you will have failure you know we're not expecting profession uh, perfection we're trying to ensure that you recognize the shortcomings of what has happened and you're trying to deal with them we may have to respond as as a result but the response won't be nearly as severe as if we have to go and do it ourselves or we don't feel like you uh and, and your client are taking uh, the matter uh, to heart and trying to really truly solve the root problem and that's ultimately what we're looking for. Over the last 20 years dealing with FA enforcement matters, my experience, and it's changed from uh, manager of the FA to manager of the FA's legal team, but I've seen it where the FA attorneys are like, look, if I truly believe you're cooperating, if you're not lying to me, we've always worked something out that makes sense, like remedial training or something like that. They're not going to give you a, a 91.3 reckless violation if you... Uh, if you work with them. So so as the, the head of this organization now and doing that, it sounds like you're kind of of a similar mind. If somebody's being, if you lie to them, they're going to bust you as hard as they can, of course. And that makes sense. But I have a slightly loaded question, different area. And you're like, oh, Tom, Jesus, I know you. You're giving me a hard question. I cannot, I cannot so, dismiss that case against you, Tom. Sorry. Yes, you cannot. So I'm going to ask it. And, then, and like I said, we can cut it. But if you need to lead from the front as the head of an organization. And if the government wants the people interact with it to be honest with it, and looking back at the prior administration, I'm not talking about your prior, but the prior administration generally, there's a lot of stuff in the news. I'm not opining on it. Um, 
Not a huge fan of the prior administration. Personally, I'm pretty clear about that. But there's a lot of stuff in the news. How do you think that affects people's view of the government long term and in dealing with any aspect of the government if there are um, issues of, hey, somebody, somebody in the government at the top of the government did something wrong? I mean, how does that affect things for you? Does it affect things for you? I'm just curious more than anything yeah, else. That's not a great, a great question. No, and I've been asked this before, so I, I will sort of give you a, a, a slight um, a different take on, on on what I normally say. So, you know, as a lawyer, you you know, we call it the practice of law, right? And, you know, people sometimes expect you to come in and, you know, you have your, your, your set talking points or your set pieces or your set template form or, you know, what have you. But at some point something needs to change in the in the document, in the courtroom, you know, right. in the boardroom, what have you, which is why it's called the practice of law. You know, sometimes you'll get it right and you'll hit it right on the on the nose and sometimes you won't. By comparison, I often say, you know, this this experiment that the founders gave us is the practice of civic engagement. Because in a lot of ways, you, we don't get it right on the on the first try. Uh, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. Or the but, <laughs> but the genius of the Constitution is it says, in order to strive for a more perfect union. Um, and so that's why it's the practice of, of civic engagement. And we all owe it as citizens to continue that practice. You know, for some of us, we will practice a lot more because, you know, because of where we sit. My role in the government means I practice it a bit more every day, um, you know, than, than maybe somebody in the, you know, in the middle of, of Texas or Minnesota or what have you. But we all have a responsibility to practice, whether it's by voting, um, whether it's by uh, encouraging. Maybe it's, a, it's also by writing a letter that you oppose something or getting involved in your school board, edu- uh, school board contest or, or, or what have you. We all owe some responsibility to make sure that uh, if this country is to become what we hope it to be, uh, it relies on every single one of its citizens doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is taking part in our government to help it form a more perfect union, whatever that means in our mind's eye that it should be. Um, you know, And coming back full circle to where we started this conversation, that's what it was about for me and why I decided to take this job is because this was yet one more example of me trying to engage in the practice of civic engagement just from, you know, perhaps a, a slightly, slightly higher viewpoint. I love it that you pulled everything back to the Constitution and striving. I've never even really personally thought about striving for a more perfect union. That's fantastic. So, Mark, next week, I'm going to ask you for pieces of advice. And I feel like we've gotten a lot of advice from you. Our listeners certainly have. And things have changed for you just in the last year about how you view the world, which is fantastic. Even us old folks, right? Over 50, we can have things that change. So um, next week, I'll ask you to share a couple pieces of advice, two or three things, or one or six, whatever it is, some number of things uh, with our listeners. And listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Black Letter Podcast with Mark Nichols, Chief Counsel, Federal Aviation Administration. We'll be back with you and Mark next week to talk about his closing pieces of advice, his life and business advice for you uh, throughout his career, how it shaped him and, and what you can do. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. I'll remind you, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. 
That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.